Good evening. We're going to read from Micah, and it's chapter 3. It's on page 931 in the Church Bibles. That's the whole of Micah, chapter 3. So Micah 3, starting at verse 1. Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel... Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, But he will not answer them. At that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me... I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look to the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble the temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Lizzie, thank you for reading that uh, for us. Um, For those of you who don't know me, there may be one or two. My name's David. I'm a member of the staff team here, and uh, I'm also what the Church of England call a reader, a lay preacher, I suppose is a good word for it. And we're going to be continuing a study that we started two or three weeks ago, looking through the Old Testament prophecy of Micah. And with any part of God's word, we need God's help. So we're going to start by praying and asking that God would help us understand this particular part of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that... Um, that there are all sorts of things that we find in your Bible. Um, Some things are perhaps difficult to understand, but, um, yeah, we find them reasonably easy to take. And then there are other parts of your word which uh, 
a fairly simple to understand, but perhaps quite difficult to take and accept. And Heavenly Father, perhaps this chapter is one of those. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand your word. And Heavenly Father, even if we find what we read in it today uncomfortable, Father, we pray that you'd help us to accept it and to apply it to our situation and take note of it. Amen. Amen. It was quite a long time ago when my daughter Anna was, uh, was relatively young. Uh, as a family, we had the opportunity to go to a performance of Romeo and Juliet. And, um, well, you know, as a family, we thought it might be a good idea if Anna had a rough idea of what the story was about before she actually saw it being performed. So that sorted out bedtime stories for a few nights. And we found out a book called Tales from Shakespeare for Children. Uh, and that was bedtime stories for the next few evenings. Now, Anna really loved the story. She really got into it. There was just one slight problem with it. She just couldn't believe that the story hadn't ended. She said, it can't end that way. There's no happy ending. That's the thing about Romeo and Juliet. There's no happy ending. Let's face it, it wouldn't be a tragedy if there was one. But my daughter wasn't the only person who's actually found that difficult to take and difficult to accept, uh, including some quite surprising people. In 1935, the famous Russian composer, Sergei Prokofiev, decided that he needed to create a ballet based on the play Romeo and Juliet. And, well, like my daughter, he felt there was only one thing wrong with it, the ending. And so he decided to rewrite it with Romeo and Juliet quite literally dancing into the sunset together. Now, I don't know what you think about Soviet censorship, but for once they got it right. And they suggested that Prokofiev rethink his plans and stick with Shakespeare's ending. It wasn't actually performed as originally written until uh, 2008. I'm not sure the world missed it over all that time. But that is the thing, isn't it? People don't like happy endings. Now, books are published with miserable endings, and you might say that in many ways they're perhaps truer to life than some books, but they don't sell anything like as well as stories where the hero wins out, where the hero defeats their enemies, where the hero ends up with the love of their life. People don't like unhappy endings. And the people that listened to the words of Micah the first time around were, were also a bit like that. They were people who didn't like happy, unhappy endings either. In fact, it wasn't just that they didn't like them. They didn't actually believe in them. They didn't believe in a world where there were unhappy endings. They believed that whatever happened... Whatever difficulties they faced, frankly, whatever they did, there would always be a happy ending. If you look at the end of verse 11, for instance, uh, you, you have these people saying, uh, you looked for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. They didn't believe in unhappy endings. They didn't believe that it was possible. The trouble was... They were mistaken. 
Micah ministered to the nation of Judah about 700 years before the time of Jesus. Judah was a relatively small country. It was a relatively weak country, but they were going through good times by their standards. Economic activity was growing. There was more money about. There was more prosperity. There was more trade. And, um, you know, things seemed to be going relatively well on the face of things. Now, the book of Micah splits naturally into three sections, the first two chapters, the middle three, and the last two chapters. And, and each of those sections actually follows a similar kind of pattern. There is bad news in the short term and in the long term hope. You may remember last Sunday, if you were here, Phil was talking about chapter 2. And yes, he spoke about uh, the bad news, uh, about the dissection of the causes of sin and wrongdoing. But right at the end of chapter 2, there was a promise. uh, The promise in the future of a rescuer. Now, if you stick with Micah over the next few Sundays, we'll be learning more about that long-term hope again when we look at uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5. But to be perfectly frank with you, Uh, Looking at chapter 3, there's not very much long-term hope to be an offer in this particular chapter. If you're looking for happy endings this evening, unfortunately this chapter doesn't really have very much of that on offer. All we have is a brutal realism about the grim state that life and Judah had sunk into a willingness to name those responsible, the leaders of the nation and those who advised influences and guided them. But before we go on to think about what was happening in Judah, perhaps we need to say a little bit about, well, what's this got to do with us? All this happened, what, two and a half, 2,700 years ago? Uh, I mean, you know, an awful lot of time has passed. Uh, The world is very, very, very different. Uh, What's it got to do with us? How can what was happening way back then have anything sensible or relevant to actually say to our situation? Well, it's relevant for us today for two reasons. It's relevant, first of all, because Judah was a faith community. The people of Judah, with their cousins in the northern kingdom of Israel, were the people of God. People with whom God had entered into a very special relationship. People whom God had blessed people whom God had called to follow him. And that's us as well, if you're part of this church. As a local church and as part of God's church around the world, we are individually part of God's people too. Through faith in Jesus, we're a people with whom God has entered into a very special relationship. We are people who God has blessed We are people whom God has called to follow him. But over and above that, Judah was a faith community, but it was more than a faith community. It was also a nation state. It raised taxes. It provided perfection to people. It maintained order within society. And so this evening, I want to suggest to you that Micah's warnings are relevant to more than what goes on in a church. It's relevant to the life that we live as members of society, as members of this particular country. Uh, It's relevant to you if you exercise a leadership role in anything. 
uh, those, if you, you have a position of power, if you, yes, if you aspire to a leadership role within this church, it's relevant to you. But, you know, when you think about your future, where do you hope to end up? Do you hope to end up running something? whether it be the nation, the council, a school, a business, or maybe just leading one of the teams at the local branch of McDonald's. If you're going to be MT, if you aspire to leading something, if you find yourself in that situation, as a believer, this is relevant to you because your faith ought to be impacting the way in which you approach, the way in which you lead whatever it is you've been given responsibility uh, for. And it's relevant to us because this chapter is a warning to people who lead and to people who influence or advise them, leaders and their advisors. The first four verses of the the chapter focus on people who lead. Now, people will debate until the end of time what makes a leader, but you can usually spot them easily enough. They usually have the biggest office, and they usually have lots of people paying a great deal of attention to what they think and say. I suppose if you were looking for one working definition of a leader, it's people who inspire confidence so that people are happy to follow them. It's people who control behavior so that things run properly. It's people who make hard decisions so that things can move forward. But beyond all this, they should be acting for the good of others. They should be acting for the good of their team. They should be acting for the good of their business, for the good of the church if they're in a position of leadership within a church, Uh, for the good of the nation if they're involved in politics, for the good of the business if that's where they're actually placed. They should be looking and working for the good of other people. But as you read chapter 3, it's obvious that the leaders of Judah weren't terribly interested about the good of others at all. They were only interested in the good of themselves. They didn't inspire confidence. If anything, they inspired fear. They didn't control behavior. They could barely control themselves. They didn't make hard decisions. They were just too busy looking out for themselves. Chapter 3 begins with a question. Should you not embrace justice? Well, of course they should, but they weren't. Instead, they were people who hated good and loved evil. Verses 2 and 3 use some gruesome images to describe how those leaders were treating ordinary people in Judah. The leaders of Judah were people who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip them of their skin and break their bones in pieces who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. I'm sorry if that makes you feel a little sick. I think it's meant to. What does it tell us? It's not just a picture of cruelty and brutality, though it's all of that. It's a picture of leaders who see no limit on their power to exploit the poor, the weak, and the helpless. They're like hunters who regard and treat ordinary citizens as animals rather than human beings made in God's image. They have, de- they have dehumanized the people they're supposed to be leading. Leaders, rules of the little people who could be treated like animals to be butchered and have everything of the remotest value extracted from them. 
Victims who could be abused at will for the selfish ends of the ruling elite. Those who should have been the watchdogs of public welfare and guardians of morality had betrayed their trust. They were oppressing those they were supposed to be protecting. And, and it wasn't any people. It was my people. It was God's people. People that God had entrusted to their care. Now the phrase, my people, God's people, has a very specific spiritual meaning within the context of the people of Israel. It was this very fact that made the way the Judah's leaders were behaving so much worse. They should have known so much better. But God has an interest in all people. After all, he created all people and he sustains all people. He wishes good for all. Not least that they should come to a saving faith and abuse of any people by their leaders, not least of all Christians who claim to have a Christian profession, is sinful and wrong. But you'll have noticed that the focus of Micah's condemnation wasn't just aimed at the leaders of Judah, those who had been appointed to formal leadership positions. He was also concerned about the advisors, the influencers, those who guided the nation of Israel, of Judah, those who guided those who, lead, who led Judah. And in verse 5 to 7, Micah focuses on them, and in particular, he focuses in on the prophets, the people who were supposed to bring God's word into the life of the nation and community. It was their role to speak God's truth to people of power and influence. It was their role to keep the nation of Judah and its rulers honest, to blow the whistle on the abuse of power. And what was the problem with the prophets in Micah's time? Well, it was exactly the same as the problem with the leaders. They may have done it in a different way, but the problem was exactly the same. They were using their position They were using their ability. They were using their God-given gifts for personal advantage rather than for the good of those people that they were supposed to be serving. Now, no one suggested that people involved in public life or spiritual life in Old Testament Israel or Judah were expected to do it for free. In the Old Testament, there was provision for those who were involved in serving the nation and those involved in serving uh, the religious life of the community, to make sure that their their needs were met. But these people had converted prophecy, speaking out God's word, into a commercial activity and a corrupt commercial activity. They were in the prophecy business for whatever they could get out of it, telling the people and leaders whatever would pay well. Verse 5 describes the prophets as people who proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepared to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. In other words, they gave favorable prophecies to the wealthy. Those who could afford, well, they had nothing but good news from these prophets. But they had nothing to say to the poor. They weren't worth the effort. And maybe out of spite, they would frighten poor people with threats of disaster. 
They proclaim peace, that word shalom, which means more than just the absence of conflict and implies well-being, things like harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility, if you can afford it. If you can afford it, everything's going to be all right. God's best is coming your way. Their motto is, make people happy now. Who cares about the future? So long as the money keeps running in to the prophecy machine. Now, you don't need me to tell you that this wasn't just a problem a long, long time ago. Scroll forward 700 years to the time of the New Testament and you find that the New Testament is describing this issue and speaking to this problem too. Uh, just to take one example from 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 and 4. There were teachers abusing their role then just as well. Paul speaks of a time when people won't put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And the point is that their suggestion is they'll find no shortage of people willing to give them what they want. And bringing things really up to date we are constantly reading, aren't we, today, accusations of political leaders who use their position for personal advantage, and not just in nations a long way from Western Europe either. And it's not just politicians. Only this week, one of our national newspapers published reports of the exploitation of migrants in southern Europe who were harvesting crops for virtually nothing by the way of wages. And it can sometimes be frighteningly close to home. From time to time, we hear reports of religious leaders who have profited from their congregations or exploited them in other ways. Or advisors who tell their clients what they want to hear. Or preachers who preach what they think their congregations want to hear. One writer has described people like that. Their first rule is, don't rock the boat. And their second is, give people what they want to hear. And the question that has to be asked is this. Could this be you? Not, is it you? But could it? Given the right circumstances, the right situation, given the opportunity... Which way would you go? Could this end up being a description of you? If you do well, if you prosper in life, in work, in Christian ministry, could you end up succumbing to the temptation to put your own interests before the interests of the people you're supposed to be looking out for? To become a corrupt leader? to become an unreliable advisor or influencer of others. Well, if you think that's a risk, if you think that's a possibility, if you think, well, yeah, never say never, it could happen to me, we need to move on to think about the fact that with corruption comes consequences. You know, the whole miserable situation in Judah is well summed up in verse 11 when uh, Micah sums up the whole situation and says, her leaders judge for a bribe, 
Her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Different roles, different people, but the same problem. In it for what you can get out of it. And God was saying that the consequences of this will be personal shame and collective disaster. But before we go there, I just want to take a moment to pick out on verse 8 and draw your attention to the contrast between the leaders and advisors in Judah and Micah. In verse 8, Micah says this of himself, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. What gave him the authority to say those things? To speak uncomfortable truth to power, to speak dangerous truth to power. Two things. First of all, he was filled with God's power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and he was concerned not for himself, but for God's values. He was concerned for God's justice. He wasn't speaking on his own behalf or in his own power. He wasn't focusing on what was best for him, but on God's behalf and under God's prompting. And so with confidence, he could actually talk about the consequences of the corruption of Judah's leaders and advisors that he just described. And interestingly, just as the wrongdoing was more or less identical between the leaders and the advisors, so were the consequences of their actions. For both, first of all, there would be silence. God's silence. For its leaders, well, look at verse 4. At a time of need, they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. They have been ignoring God when they thought they didn't need him. But when they realize they do, God will ignore them. He'll be silent. And when it comes to the prophets, well, look at verse 6. The gift will be taken away from them. God will no longer speak to them either. Night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets. The day will go dark for them. When they want God, he will not be for them either. He'll be silent. You see, the prophets that Micah denounces weren't exactly fakes. Micah's not doubting that these people had received visions from God, that they had been blessed with a genuine prophetic gift. God, yes, had spoken through them, but they had misused. They had abused. They had corrupted the gift of God. And God was going to go silent on them. They were going to be deprived of their gifts. Their spiritual illumination would come to an end. Both classes of people had failed to hear the cry of those requiring justice. And now God would refuse to listen to them or speak to them. It's interesting to compare verse 4 and 7. In verse 4, God hides his face from the leaders because of the evil they've done. In verse 7, the prophets cover their faces because there's no answer from God. But the consequences were not just going to take the form of personal shame and embarrassment as God withdrew his blessing on those who were personally responsible. It would also lead to disaster for the community. 
as we saw right at the end of the chapter in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become like a heap of rubble. The temple mound overgrown with thickets. Go back two verses to verse 10. The leaders of Jerusalem had built Zion with bloodshed. Jerusalem with wickedness. And it would all come crashing down. Remember right at the beginning we said that for Judah things were going quite well economically. And people were doing whatever they, what they always do it seems when things are going quite well economically. They were investing in bricks and mortar. Uh, they were putting up better houses, new houses. Better houses for themselves but at a price. The mansions and palaces were built on wealth obtained from extorting, extorting money out of innocent people. And it was all set to come tumbling down. All they held dear was going to be swept away. And of course it's perhaps worth mentioning that all that did happen in time. As they behaved, so God would act. And as we said, this is not an issue that's gone away. We have the same problem today. And consequently, we need to be alive to the same consequences today. As I was working on this sermon, uh, Ruth asked me if there was going to be any hope in it. Well, to be honest, while there is hope in the book of Micah, it's jolly hard to find very much hope in this chapter. What we do have in this chapter is, first of all, a warning. A passionate reminder of the need for consistency between creed, what we say, and conduct, what we do. A solemn reminder against the thinking that there can't be an unhappy ending. The mentality that says, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. There's a warning. And there's food for thought. If Micah was ministering in 2016, where would he go? Who would he speak to? Who would he challenge? Would he go to the seats of power, to Parliament, to Downing Street, to all those think tanks that advise on this and that? Would he go to the staff of schools, colleges and universities as they prepare children and young people for the future? Would he visit a minister conferences and theological colleges to warn Christian leaders that privilege brings responsibility and responsibility, accountability, accountability to God? And perhaps there is hope in this reminder that we can avoid repeating the mistakes of the past by focusing on that verse I mentioned earlier, verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and with might. How can leaders, whether they're leading a church or leading a team at work, or perhaps something bigger, how can their advisors and influencers, the people they turn to for counsel, how can they avoid becoming corrupted by the, the opportunities that inevitably will come their way? By keeping your focus on God's values. Not concentrating on adding value to yourself. 
understand what God values. Focus on those things. Things like justice. Things like the good of other people. Ultimately, their salvation. And put your energy into those things. And secondly, keep on seeking to be filled with God's power. The power of the Spirit. Instead of seeking power for yourself, seek God's power to be at work in you. And seek God's Spirit to be guiding and steering you. For the leaders of Judah, there was no happy ending. They may not have realized it, but they were powerless to control their own destiny. But for us, if we make the right key decisions, trusting in God, yes, but also focusing on God's values, looking to be empowered by him, If we focus on those things, if we concentrate on those things, if we think on those things, if we actually make them important in our lives, there is hope, even in chapter 3. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a grim story. It's a grim picture. There's nothing pleasant about it. But Heavenly Father, thank you that your grace and mercy is always available to us. Thank you that the power of your Holy Spirit is always available to us. Father, help us to put our trust in you. Help us to be led by you. Help us to seek after you so that the, the worst that could happen to us and the worst that we might do will not happen because you are directing us in a different way. Amen.